Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next guest is the founder of Multifamily For You. She is a multifamily syndicator and has invested as a limited and general partner in 3,000 plus stores with a total of over 200 million in assets. Here to discuss boots on the ground, asset management, and her best practices in underwriting. Please welcome Sanja Sashadri. All right, today we have Sanja Sashadri with us. Sanja, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are the founder of Multifamily For You, invested as a limited partner, a key principal, and a general partner in over 3,000 doors, totaling over $200 million in assets through the U.S. You know, to kind of as we get started, what we'd like to ask is like, how did you get started in your real estate career? So like most Asian geeks, I have a background in electrical engineering. I had a strong math degree and all that. So I went from that into the stock market by getting an MBA part-time while I worked in the corporate world full-time. And then I was looking for something that would give me first flexibility of schedule, but also a tax advantage. And I always wanted to get into real estate in some way. However, single family rentals just didn't seem to have the margins. And I wanted to avoid the four T's, the tenants, toilets, trash, and termites. Did not want to get a call on Thanksgiving day with a leaky toilet. So I avoided single family rentals and fix and flips for that reason. Then I attended a weekend seminar. I'm in Dallas. I've lived here for over 32 years. And so I attended a weekend seminar and I found a mentor who's based here, who's got a large presence in this Dallas market for multifamily. And when I saw the economies of scale in large scale multifamily, it made sense because then I would be more of an asset manager rather than a self-managed single family rental owner. And that made a lot of sense. And that's how I found different people to partner with. First as a limited partner using my retirement funds from my past life as an engineer and then built the relationships to become a general partner myself. And I do both right now. I invest passively and I partner and lead my own deals in the Dallas area. So Sandia, you mentioned you found a mentor. How did you go about finding a mentor and fostering that relationship? So I joined an official mentoring program. It's by Brad Samrock. I attend a weekend seminar by him. It's called a rat race. So a lot of the mentors have these weekend events where you can get a feel for it and see if it's a good fit for you in terms of, for me, the biggest criteria was somebody with a large presence in Dallas so that I can get Dallas deals because this is my target market. This is where I live. And that was important to me. A lot of other mentors were really great. They had great content online, et cetera, but they didn't have as large a presence in Dallas. And so that's how I chose my mentor because, you know, I could meet a room full of 500 people all with deals in Dallas, which meant, hey, one day they're going to sell them. And here I am waiting to buy them. Right. So I've bought like three deals from people I know in the past 18 months. So the network pays off. That's a pretty cool story. So 
You mentioned you initially invested as an LP. So what did you learn as an LP investing in other people's deals? So it's like being a passenger in a plane first. Before you decide to pilot a plane, you should at least experience flying first, I think. So that's basically what it was. I was an active passive investor and I chose to invest passively in deals in Dallas. So whenever the GP was going to visit the property or they sent me monthly financials, I had a lot of questions. I was curious and I was willing to roll up my sleeves and even assist if they needed anything. So that was the biggest benefit, I think, of being a limited partner, but also in an active way, because my goal was ultimately to be a general partner also. So I had the network and I had the connections and I learned what I liked about people's reporting, about how they operated. So all these strategies you learn about in theory, right? Oh, you do these interior upgrades. You can get a $50 rent bump or $100 rent bump or you get this for reserved parking and all the different strategies you learn. They came to life as a limited partner, but without taking on all the risks, right? I didn't have to sign a loan. I didn't have to take other people's money that they trusted in me as a newbie. So I think it was the best of both worlds for me to get started. And you said you've been in Dallas for a long time, I guess. How long did you kind of stay as that LP partner? And then like, what sort of time progression did you start to move into being a sponsor? So from when I started, I wasn't, I'm still a limited partner today, by the way, and I'm four years into this business, but from zero to being an active general partner in my first deal, it took me about seven months. And I partnered with others in the group who had the experience and knowledge, but the way I made them take me on is by saying that I'm your local Dallas expert and you're both out of state. So I found two partners who are out of state who wanted to get into Texas and into the Dallas market. And I can be your local expert, boots on the ground. I had kids, I dropped them off in school. I'm available all day pretty much to run to properties. And so they could be the brains and I could be the brawn and execute on the strategies and learn the process. And we did this around the second half of 2019. That's when I got my first deal. And so then 2020 COVID struck, so they weren't able to travel here as much. So all the things they told me and taught me, I was able to go and actually implement on site. So I was the one running each time to the property to meet vendors and learn from those vendors. Because, you know, vendors can give you a lot of insights when you have a lot of different CapEx projects going on. And so asset management sort of became my first role in that sense, boots on the ground. And then from there, I learned more and the confidence grew as my knowledge grew from that. So then I could talk intelligently a little bit more to people and raise the money. And then brokers knew me. So then the deals started coming, et cetera. It's like the law of the first deal, as Michael Duong mentioned. Yeah, that's very true. Did do you just want to give our audience kind of an idea of the size of projects that you have been working on or you were working on? Yeah. Sure. My first deal was 86 doors. It was about 6.75 million. And we bought that in August of 2019. And uh, we sold it in November 2021. So a little over 27 months. And we had phenomenal returns thanks to the cap rate compression as well as the deal itself working. So I had a really good first deal. We more than tripled our investors' money. But right now, my most recent deals in 2022 have closed on three deals this year, and they range anywhere from 25 to 30 million. So that's the range of the deals I'm doing. So I try to do at least 150 doors plus so that we have the economies of scale. And again, my goal moving forward is to do larger and fewer deals. Larger and fewer. That sounds like less work, right? Exactly. So, you know, you could do several $20 million deals, or you could do a couple of $50 million deals and accomplish the same thing, right? And so you can focus more on just those two assets. And yes, it'll be a lot less work. So when you 
Talk about time. What do you think the time like? How does it break down from raising funds to implementing the value add plan to, I guess, getting the deal and then selling the asset? What do you think the breakdown is? I think finding the deal can be anywhere from, hey, you're my friend. I'm going to sell you this deal if you meet this price to, okay, you keep chasing deal after deal after deal and you make offers and you don't get awarded those deals, right? That's what 2021 was like that. You know, it was very much a seller's market, especially in a big metro like Dallas. So finding a deal could be anywhere from a few days to months, right? And then your relationship with brokers in big markets like Dallas is going to make all the difference for you getting awarded the deals. So you definitely want to work on that. As far as raising money, raising money is something you do all the time, especially when you don't have a deal is the best time to raise money because they're not under the pressure. And most of the deals I've done are 506B like Bravo deals, which means I need to know them and have several touch points with them before an investor can place their money in my deal. And so you want to be doing that right now when you don't have a deal so that you can have that documented in case you're ever audited. So that's important. And also imagine you're asking for big amounts of money, right? You're not just knocking somebody's door and saying, hey, buy my kid's scout popcorn or something. So this is 50K, 100K kind of money. So imagine yourself working over that money to somebody else on a deal where you have no control, right? Well, that takes several conversations, right? It just doesn't happen because, oh, you're this great speaker who had the best conversation for 15 minutes, you know? So raising capital is constant. But once you're under contract for a deal, that's when, you know, you're sort of under the gun. You typically have 60 days to close, maybe with a couple of extensions, right? So my thing is you always want to send out LOI accepted kind of emails to your database so that they know something's coming and you want to prep them and have calls with them prior to that big webinar presentation. But I try to have within five business days of my webinars to have all the money wired. So we typically got fully subscribed in all of 2021 and the first half of 2022. And then the second half of 2022, it slowed down. So the second deal I had in 2022, it took us over three weeks to raise the money. And my most recent deal, it took me five weeks to raise all the money. So, you know, it's definitely slowed down. Investors are getting a little more cautious, reluctant, et cetera. And deals started to retrade quite a bit. So that's the, you know, raising money half of it. Then you close the deal. <laughs> that's when the real work begins to actually execute whatever business plan you have committed to your investors, right? So that's mm -hmm. when rubber meets the road. You've got to make sure prior to that, your property management company, if you employ a third party, is uh, fully engaged with you and accepts your business plan. That's huge because they have to implement it and make it happen. They have to agree that, hey, by doing this interior upgrade, you will get the rent bump that you're hoping for. Or your other income strategy of something like reserved parking or covered parking, right? How do you know that it's going to work? You've got to have that buy-in from your local property management company who's got the experience. Because without that, it's very hard to implement it. But we typically look at finishing out all our CapEx, depending on whether it's from a lender who's giving us that money or if we raised all that money ourselves. So if it's a Freddie loan, Freddie does not loan you CapEx money. So then it's up to you to decide what you spend and when you spend it. Versus with a lender like a bridge lender or Fannie, and they are loaning you the CapEx money, they will start charging you that interest, I think, by the end of year one in a lot of cases. So you want to go ahead and do those draws, and you can't get those money draws done unless you completed the project. So in that case, you'll be in a bigger sense of urgency to execute all those projects. So I think the strategy also depends on how old your property is, because you want to hold on to CapEx money if you've got a much older property 
because you just don't know when something could break down and you might have some deferred maintenance expenses. Oh, I was going to say having some reserves is always and being well-funded is great. With the asset management, you said you're kind of like the boots on the ground. Like, What does that look like day-to-day for you with these deals that you have going on? So if you have an emergency call, I'm the one who is the first on site. Like we did, they said, oh, there is a gas leak because Atmos Energy just changed the gas lines and they did a pressure testing of your buildings. And guess what? There seems to be a leak. You need to get plumbers on site. So before the city inspector comes there and raises hell, I'm also there just in case, talk to tenants, make sure the place is safe, et cetera. So that's an example of showing up because you're the boots on the ground. In a typical case, I go at least once a week to all my properties and they're all located within 30 minutes of my house, which makes it very easy, very convenient. So when I hear something from the property manager, it's just easier for me to go to the property than to try to look it up on some cameras, et cetera. At the same time, you want to let property management do their thing. You don't want to micromanage every step of the way because that takes time away from all the other tasks you could be doing. After all, they're getting paid to execute the plan for you. So it's a little bit of a trust but verify model, but I show up whenever any inspector is on site. The lender's inspection, when the cost seg team comes in, I like to talk to them because I want to get as much depreciation as I can and I want to point out different things and I want to see what they look for. So I like those conversations when an engineer shows up. When I have a structural engineer shows up, maybe there's a foundation problem at a building. So it depends on your level of interest in these things. But for me, I'm eager to learn more. So whenever inspectors show up, insurance guy shows up, any major check is going on by the lender, city inspectors, all of that, I show up. On a regular basis, I show up just to have events for my on-site staff. If I know it's my property manager's birthday, I'll take a present or I'll take flowers or something, or I'll have lunch with them periodically, et cetera. Of course, always going through the chain of command. Make sure your regional, your director, whoever is running that is okay with you doing that. But I do both of that. And then a big one that we do in all our properties is community events. So at least every quarter we have something happening. So like a Halloween costume contest, a Christmas door decorating contest, or Thanksgiving turkey giveaway or pies or something, or Easter egg hunt, picnic, you know, popsicles by the pool, et cetera. So you know, in that sense, I'm a bit of an involved asset manager. So I organize some of these, of course, with my on-site recommendations on what they think is best. But most importantly, if it's a new property management company with whom you've never worked before, it's important to be aligned. So I like to walk a unit before a resident moves in to make sure that QC is up to the levels that we like. You know, I want to see those straight edges when something gets painted. Or I want to make sure those knobs are all straight. You know, it's all the little things. But I want a neat clean, nice, safe product. I don't care as much about the fancy look, but it's got to be tidy. It's got to be welcoming. It can't be holes in the wall under the sink after a leak was repaired or something like that. You know, you got to check all those things, make sure everything is in working order, the lights work, things like that. So I try to do that at the beginning, but I can't do that across 200 doors when they become vacant. (laughs) So then I'll say, you know, send me a picture or send me a video of what you did at this property. And that usually works. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503 446 3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com.
sounds like, you know, a very high level of involvement in asset management. Like I have not heard from another syndicator that level of involvement. And it's very impressive. I think that that's so cool. I just wrote Mm -hmm. down a bunch of ideas. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) And you don't need to do that all the time. And, you know, once we reach what I call cruising altitude to where month after month, the financials look great. The onsite sounds happy. I look at my cameras and everything seems to be fine. I check the cameras at night randomly or something on my app and everything seems fine. I'm not going there all the time. But at the beginning, especially you want to go there, especially the first few days after you take over a property and they don't have all their systems set up. I literally take my laptop and I sit there and say, what decisions do you need from me? What kind of petty cash kind of quick purchases you need to get you started and set up? And that really helps a lot. One of the directors from the PM company is not able to be there. I'll go stay there just to give them authority to go get some things done quickly. Because usually you're inheriting a whole bunch of work orders. You're inheriting some level of bad tenants, et cetera. So the more you're there, and if all I do is sit there and authorize a free lunch or something for my onsite, hey, I've served my purpose. Yeah. <laughs> that so. sounds like a, a lot of support. You've mentioned cameras yeah. a couple of times. Like I haven't heard of too many properties having cameras. Like what is it that you have set up to check? That's one of the first things we do is we have cameras set up. So I have an app on my phone and I can click it anytime I want and I can watch the cameras. So whether it's around the perimeter of the property, the laundry rooms, the common areas, anything I want to see. What kind of activity do I have in that back alley at midnight? You know, I can check anything. That's important for us. So if the property doesn't already have cameras, that's one of our first CapEx projects is to get a camera system installed there that I could monitor from my app. And, you know, with partners who are located out of state, they definitely wanted that. So that's uh, another thing. And so whenever some incidents happen, we can just, you know, rewind that tape and see what happened. Who was there at 11 p.m. at night in the laundry room? You know, why is the camera closed now? Oh, I see that guy. He came there and he covered the camera so he could do his thing in the laundry room and leave, you know? So you just find uh, interesting things like that. But I think cameras are essential for the security of your properties, depending on the kind of properties you have. But I have them across all of ours. I think that's great advice. All right. So we've talked a little bit about asset management. I mean, it sounds like you're spending a decent amount of your time on asset management, or at least just being involved. And you mentioned that you had sold a property in November of 2021. Do you want to share what that was like and the amount of energy that it took to get that property ready for sale and what kind of that is like? So we were very fortunate with that property. Every CapEx plan we implemented, we actually got the results. For example, we converted one of the units was where the leasing office was held. And so we moved the leasing office to half of the laundry room. So we generated a whole new unit and, you know, got the rent for one extra additional unit. We did uh, things like uh, fences around the private yard. So we had condos on one side and had just apartments on the other. So all these condos got these extra private yards. That was an easy one. So once all the CapEx was implemented within a matter of six to nine months, you could see that your revenue was going up like crazy. And then cap rates kept compressing for us, right? In 2021, the interest rates were great, great cap rates, you know, cap rates were compressed. And so we just looked at it like, okay, in five years, we were hoping to give, you know, like an overall 80% return to our investors. And if we sold it today, we would be like tripling their money. Okay, well, that's an no-brainer. 
So we spoke to our broker. We also spoke to the lender to refi the deal. And we tried to, tried to decide between refi versus sale. And most of our investors were happy with a sale to have a quick cycle like that. And that's what we ended up doing. The prep was pretty easy. Our property management company at that time was really, really good. So, you know, you just got to maintain your financials, right? That's basically it. I mean, the property is otherwise nice. You do the tours. The broker takes care of most of the stuff. PM sends all the information over to him, your financials and contracts and things like that. Once you're under contract, your potential buyer wants to review all of that to let you know which ones they're going to get you or not. Broker does the tours. We pick a buyer. If we're under contract. They do their due diligence. Back in the day, at least last year, you know, hard money is hard day one. So the buyers are locked in. And these are, again, people we knew from our same ecosystem. So that made it easy. We knew they would close the deal. That was the number one thing, right? When you're a seller, you want the certainty of closing. You want a resume which says, yes, I've got prior experience, whether it's Fannie or Freddie or whatever, and they can close a deal of this size. That was the biggest thing that helped them win the deal. Everything went smoothly. It was easy. And I have to say, we lucked out. There was no complications with that. Did you guys have multiple offers? I mean, did you list the property or was it that, you know, you gave it to the broker and then the broker kind of elicited offers from potential buyers? The process is that the broker who sells you the deal, you give them the business back when you are ready to sell it. That's how it works. So the same, we had Marcus and Millichap. They did a fantastic job. They already have a history on the property. So they listed it for us, you know, and typically we sort of do a few things with uh, whatever the broker recommends. You keep the deal prepared and ready for, you know, kind of like how you stage your home for sale. If you will, you know, you make it clean, you clean up the landscape, you make sure everything looks nice and pretty. You know, when the broker is doing their chores, they give you advance notice when the people are coming. So, you know, your regional or someone is present to do the tours. We got multiple offers. We got about seven offers and then we picked the top three and then went to a best and final round and awarded it to one of them. Everything went pretty smoothly after that. They'd come back and once they put hard money down, the buyer does their full due diligence, the physical inspections of everything. Again, it was a seller's market a year ago. So, you know, if they found problems, they just added it to their list of deferred maintenance they would have to do once they purchased it. But otherwise it went smoothly and we didn't have any other issues. The broker is really good to have as a liaison in case there's problems. But uh, these were great people to, you know, sell it to. And it was a very smooth process. Did you say that the new buyers were within your like ecosystem, like that mentorship kind of program and networking? Yes, they were. Mm -hmm. Actually, out of the three potential buyers we chose, two of them were from the ecosystem itself. So it was not just a matter of pricing. It was the certainty of closure. Interesting. Did that play into account of like the selection of the top three? Yes. We picked people who we knew had closed before. It just made it a lot easier. Yeah. So if you don't have it, like if you're trying to get your first deal and you've never closed a deal of that size before, just get somebody else with you to be your KP or co-GP or something whose resume you can include when you make that offer letter. LOIs, when you place them, you want to make sure you've got a powerful resume who's got history of closing that size of deal. Like if I decided to go after a $50 million deal and I've never done such a deal before, I'm going to need either a very strong person with a resume of closing such a size deal, or I have to have a very strong connection with the broker. Because ultimately, the broker is going to push you to the seller to get a word of the deal. So somebody has to be convinced, right? 
Absolutely. So I guess a detailed question, did the sellers use the same broker or same office as Marcus and Millichap as your broker? Like, did they keep it in-house? Yeah. There's just one broker involved in the transaction. Yeah. So we, the sellers, choose the broker to list the property and we listed it with the same brokerage who sold it to us in the first place. It's part of the loyalty. That's how you do it. And yeah, those buyers, they don't usually get another broker. They might have a buyer broker, but typically there's only one listing broker for the property. The listing broker finds the buyer as well. Yeah, the listing broker is the one who tours the properties to potential buyers. This is a big firm and they have a website and that's where you come in and you find the deal and you download the data. You're having these discussions with the broker. Like if I'm a buyer, right? Let's say I want to buy a property now that I've sold one. I go to the website of these famous brokers in the Dallas area who dominate this market. So one of them is, uh, you know, Marcus and Miller chap. There's a Dallas chapter and a Fort Worth chapter. There's a North Mark and there's New Mark. There's Greya. There's a few, right? Half a dozen jobs, CBRE. And so you're on the mailing list of all of them and you look at the deals that fit your criteria and you underwrite them. And then you discuss with the broker and that broker is the one who tours the property. So it's not like a single family sale where you have your own real estate agent and then a listing agent for that property and the two of them talk. It's just one broker and that's it. And the broker represents the seller typically. That was a concept that AJ and I didn't fully understand. We started out in single family and then Mm -hmm. bought fourplexes and then we were buying eightplexes and then kind of moving our way up and we found a 36 unit that we were super interested in and Mm -hmm. we're like, we're brokers, let's write an offer and we'll represent ourselves. And I think I wrote probably 10 or 15 offers and, you know, on different properties at like ideal times to be buying apartments, like in 2015, 2016, 2017, and just didn't understand the concept that Mm -hmm. yes, technically there can be two brokers on a listing agent and then a buyer's agent, but that's just not how it works in commercial. That was a lesson that we eventually learned the hard way. And I hope that anyone listening can learn from our mistakes there. So, you know, like Dallas as a market, if you want to get a large multifamily deal, and by that, I mean, at least 50 doors and up, you want to be plugged in with all these brokers. And they're the ones who are going to know, even if it's off market. Let's say right now the economy isn't so great for selling. But if I get an offer at the right price, I might dispose of one of my properties. I'm still not going to do it directly because the broker who sold it to me in the first place needs a commission. So I'm going to tell them to contact that broker. And I'm going to say, yeah, I think I have it for sale. I'll talk to, you know, Wes and Nick and whoever else. And they'll give you the scoop on this deal. And, you know, this is sort of the target price. That's a very much scratch my back, scratch your back. And then on top of that, we come to you with good deals and... Yeah, same uh, thing, right? Now, if I sell a deal, I need another deal to buy. So they'll yeah. help me find my next deal as well yeah. as they help me get rid of this deal. So talking about deals and in this cycle in the market, are you looking for deals? Or are you selling deals? Like what's going on in your world? Oh, we just closed a deal uh, three weeks ago and it was fantastic. We were able to lock in a fixed rate loan with Freddie. So that worked out nicely well before these interest rate hikes. But today, if you're looking for a deal and you need new debt on it, that's going to be a little more expensive than if you can find a loan assumption deal. So that's always something we look for. If somebody has a Fannie or Freddie deal they're locked into, we can assume the loan. They don't have to worry about paying the prepay. 
And if the price is right and it's in a good location, it still fits my criteria. I'm looking. Now, in general, I try to avoid the holidays because I like to relax. I don't like to have any deal chasing happening in December. I think we're all distracted with the holidays. Harder to raise money at that time. Harder to get lenders and, you know, legal to pay attention to your deal. So I try not to do anything in December, but then, you know, January, I'll be back at it. But in the meantime, brokers find a deal that perfectly fits my criteria. I'm still going to, you know, go underwrite it at the very least and drive by. But some of the criteria is if there's people who have bridge loans that they took out in 2020 or 2021, and in 2022, they were hoping to refi it or they need to refi it maybe at the latest by 2023. Right now, even with a rate cap, they're paying up to the max of their rate cap. And if they didn't buy a rate cap, oh boy, they're paying, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 more every month. That is just going to the bank instead of going as profits to them and their investors, right? So those are people. And, you know, I'm also in that situation to where at some point I'll be like, if I get the right price for this, I'm just going to sell it, right? Because I don't know when interest rates are going to drop enough for me to be able to buy it. So in that sense, I'm as a buyer going to be helping out a seller who's somewhat in a level of where they're like, I'm done. I've executed my plan. It's been two years versus as a seller also, I'm like, if the price is right, I don't want to hold this for two more years, waiting for those interest rates to come back down. And, you know, I'm ready to be done with this asset. So both ways, I think there's deals to be made. As long as you you know, close that gap between a seller's expectation of a price, which is nothing like the beginning of 2022, and a buyer, what is their purchasing power today? So you almost want, if you're a seller, which is me also, I want to underwrite my deal from the point of view of a buyer and what terms they can get in a loan and what term sheet. So I ask the lender for a term sheet as if I want to buy my own deal and I underwrite it myself. And I say, okay, at this point, a buyer can make it work with these numbers. So you got to look at it both ways. So you mentioned that you closed on a deal about three weeks ago. What did your capital stack look like in terms of what was your loan to value? And then were you using preferred equity? And then what about the common equity? It was just amazing why, I don't know why, but Freddie just loved this deal. They initially gave us proceeds of 65%. And then eventually, as we went through the 60, 60, 70 days, we ended up getting 73% LTV. I couldn't believe it. So we got 73% leverage, 4.8% locked fixed rate for 10 years with a step down prepay. So if I want to sell within five years, which is typically what we do, I'm not out with a yield maintenance penalty of $5 million. It's only, you know, more like four or $500,000, which is the amount you would pay today anyway for a rate cap on a bridge loan. So it was very competitive and it's something that I only pay at the back end instead of the front end. So we lucked out hugely in that. So we got so much leverage. We just raised money from investors like we normally do. And we also had some foreign investors. So we have this set of uh, investors because we have a general partner who's located out in Dubai. And so they were able to generate some foreign investors for us as well. But yeah, it worked out nicely because somehow Freddie loved this deal. And it was an older property, but a phenomenal location. It's in Irving. So Irving is a very good um, area of DFW. It's about 10 minutes from the airport. Very, I guess, visible, high visibility popular area. Wells Fargo's located its headquarters there recently. Caterpillar moved from, you know, 100 plus years in Illinois, they moved to Irving in Texas. So there's a lot of population oh. growth, explosive stuff happening there. Irving borders Las Colinas where all the golf tournaments and four seasons and all that happens there. So you've got, you know, within a mile and a half, you've got these, you know, million dollar homes and fancy areas. And then you've also got your working class C-class properties with, you know, 
300k kind of homes, 200k homes, and all these apartments. So it worked if, out nicely. We again were blessed. If I could dig in a little bit, we don't have many people on here that work with foreign investors. Can you tell us like what the added complications are of using foreign investors' money on deals? So the easiest way to do it is have those foreigners open a U.S. LLC. So then it's just like treating that LLC like any U.S. customer like you or me. And then that's the easiest way to do it. The harder way to do it, which is what we did, is you'll have to draw up separate papers for them to sign, Reg S. And then your lender, in this case, Freddie, will tell you, okay, only a certain percentage of people of the equity raised can be from foreign investors, right? They'll limit that percentage. So you can't just have a $10 million check from a foreign investor unless the lender approves it because they want to know the source of the equity. And anytime someone writes a large check, also you'll need uh, them to probably sign the loan. So you want to make sure your lender blesses it, how much ever money you plan to raise from foreign investors. You want to make sure you have legal and accounting figured out. So we spoke with legal as well as accounting for, you know, the taxes and K-1s and things like that. Once you have those two figured out, you can take in foreign investors, even without a U.S. LLC. But them making a U.S. LLC is the easiest way to go. We had a guest on probably, I don't know, six months ago that talked about helping foreign investors create an LLC. That's definitely the best way. But I was just, even with that LLC, I think there's extra forms and additional stuff kind of hoops that you have to jump through when taking that money, but maybe I'm wrong. We didn't have to do a whole lot because I've had foreign investors with US LLC for like over two years in all my deals. And so they're treated as if they are US residents, but they just happen to be placed in, you know, living in London for two years or somewhere else. That's different from if they're completely foreign citizens without a US green card, without any work authorization in the US, and then it's foreign, foreign. Then that's when you need a regs, you need the tax laws, et cetera. Awesome. That's super cool. And like, you know, kind of opens up, you know, capital opportunities, you know, going Mm -hmm. from 330 million people to, you know, 7 billion. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. And if you can bring enough capital from certain areas of the world, right, you don't even need a loan then, right? Your entire 15, $20 million check can come from that. Then you're not restricted by what lenders do, except now the property is owned by foreigners. Yeah. And I don't know if that is going to affect you in any way or not. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, I think we are getting towards the end here. Chris, are you ready for the uh, last four questions or you have anything let's, else you want to? Let's do it. It's been a very enlightening chat and yeah. uh, very, very nice to chat with you, Sandhya. Thank been you. A pleasure. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm, I'm going to start us off with the first question, which is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25 year old self? Have confidence in your abilities. Don't assume that just because someone is older, they're necessarily wiser. Your ideas are also pretty amazing. So stick with it, stick to your guns and go with confidence and conquer this world. I love that. Okay. And our second question is, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, as a child, I disliked many classes in school. And so I was very good in math, but I was also lazy and I didn't really want to do some of the drawings or learning about history and many of the other classes. So I would actually, because math was considered a more difficult subject, I would have people do my work for me on all the other classes and pay me to help them in math. (laughs) Yes. I love it. I think that's where it started. Uh, that's like <laughs> just premium. great leadership <laughs> skills right off the bat there. I love it. 
I used to have people help me write papers in college. It was good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like who wants to write those lengthy papers? A, a math problem is easy. You just do numbers and it's done. Yeah. You can go on writing essays, you know, 200 pages, you know, whatever essays and stuff. Awesome. That's uh, great team building skills, leadership. That was an awesome answer. I love it. All right. Our next question is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Formal education opened doors for me that otherwise wouldn't have opened as far as like getting a job in a Fortune 500 company. They had to see that piece of paper. Didn't care what they actually learned from that piece of paper, but I had to have that BSWE, you know, to get into this job. But the informal training, like what I've gotten from multifamily, like I told you, I would go visit these properties and all these formal and informal mentors would teach me stuff. What I've learned in real life, that's what I've really used and really, I guess, exponentially increased my net worth and income. There's no substitute for that hands-on experience. And like when we first invested in real estate, it was kind of an enigma out there. But as you learn all the intricacies and how it works and all these different levers that are able to be pulled. And I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So definitely like that answer. Okay. And our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? My biggest mistake was to trust someone with a strong, shall we say, construction background and therefore invest passively in their deal without really looking at their asset management and actual experience in the local area. And they were so busy with acquisitions that they didn't do the level of asset management that I would have expected when other people fork over their money to you. You know, take that seriously, respect that. Don't be all about your acquisition fee and then, you know, ride into the sunset and leave it up to just property management to run the deal because then it doesn't do well. So it struggled through COVID. We had a capital call. It did very poorly. And what I learned from it was all the things that I'll never do as a syndicator myself and mm. all the things that I need to watch out for so it doesn't happen to me, right? Because your reputation is hurt and your passive investors will never come back after you have a bad deal like that, right? It's going to be taking you a long time to recover from that. So just be careful where you invest your money or hard-earned money and vet sponsors more thoroughly, vet uh, operators well, and vet the deal itself better. So I just became a better operator and uh, much better at uh, looking more deeply into deals before investing in them. So I guess to dive a little deeper in that, did you think that it was, a, I guess, a lack of detail on the initial underwriting or was it actually, you know, the lack of asset management and oversight after underwriting a good deal? I think it was too aggressive, the underwriting to begin with, and the projections were a little bit unrealistic for that market. And then the property management company they employed didn't really pay attention to the level of detail. And the sponsor was not located where the property is. Like, you know, I'm 30 minutes from my property. So I'm, you know, you call me, it's an emergency, I'm there. The sponsor lived far away from the property too. And so that's a problem. If you don't have a boots on the ground member in your GP team to look at your property on a regular basis, and leaving it up to external third-party property management, it's like the government spending your money, right? They don't care. It's other people's money. You know, <laughs> versus, oh, this is my paycheck. This is my household. This is all I can spend kind of level of seriousness. Yeah. That makes a difference. So I think the underwriting was too aggressive. I don't think they had enough margins in there when COVID happened. They spent excessive amount of CapEx when COVID happened, when instead you should have been conservative and held on to your cash reserves. So that's why they ended up having to make like a capital call later. And I think that those are all lessons learned, right? Be careful, hold on to your cash. That's what it tells me now. So when I have deals, I don't go about spending all my CapEx within the first three months. 
you know, if I have a million bucks in CapEx, it gets in slowly on an as needed basis, right? So things like that. And my underwriting has a lot of padding in there. So even though I have bridge deals now, and yes, my increased mortgage payments are eating into my profits, I'm not at a place where, oh, I'm in negative cash flow situation, right? My NOI yeah. is still enough. The lender has not come and seized my deal and taken it away and said, I'm going to, you know, get a hold of your lockbox because your NOI is not enough, right? I don't have that. I have a rate cap in every one of my deals. In fact, one of them, I have a step rate cap. So the first 12 months is, you know, 5.25 and then 5.75, et cetera. So it makes me more cautious. So I think it was very valuable lesson learned. I only invested in it with my retirement money. In the end, after pressure from me, it did get sold. We did come out ahead. So it was not like a horrible deal, but it was like during that time, it was very stressful to see what was happening. It's like, why are you spending millions of dollars during COVID when the rest of us are frozen and scared and not sure what's going on and being conservative? I think that's what bothered me. And things like, you know, car payments and cell phone payments, I shouldn't see that in the statement, right? That leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth when you don't have distributions for over a year. And then here is the sponsor, you know, expensing everything to it. It's more that perception. I mean, it's a very small amount of money. Why do you even want to show it there? And for me to see it in the receipt, you know, it's just things like that. But you know what it takes now to be a responsible sponsor doing your fiduciary duty to your investors, right? So it makes me a better person learning from that experience. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really uh, very enlightening. And honestly, hearing your, I guess, energy and effort towards asset management is inspiring. And I think that that's really, really cool. And uh, I got some great ideas from you. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks yeah. For let's stay connected on social media. And if your travels ever bring you to Dallas, I'd love to take you to any of my properties and you can see it in action. Yeah, that would be great. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, do you want to throw some stuff out there on the best way to make contact with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is a great platform where I post regularly. So just connect with me there. Send me a short message to say, you know, you met me from this wonderful show through AJ and Chris. And that helps me know where I connected with you because you get so much of spam connection requests there. And also multifamilyforyou.com is my website. So that's multifamily4you.com. And you can just put your name in and a short message and I can connect from there too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know that we both learned a lot and appreciate you sharing your knowledge with everyone in our audience. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me here. Thanks so much, Sandhya. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.